postmodernism is that relativistic, humanistic, secularistic uh, way of thinking, and, and the worldview has shifted. I think it's caught a lot of people by surprise. I watched it happening in my time in youth ministry. I saw this very strange shift. Saw it in the questions that teenagers began to ask. Saw it in the lack of simple Bible knowledge. I mean, basic stuff. When I was a kid, most of my friends went to Sunday school at one church or another. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them had some sense of the Bible and those basic old stories and Jesus. And and so when you had conversations, at least there was kind of a shared worldview. And that is not the way it is in our culture. Now, I'm not meaning to be negative because Christianity is still stronger in America than uh, those with loud voices would want you to believe. And there are still plenty of believers in this country and, of course, in the world. It's still the fastest growing faith in the entire world. We don't always pick that up when we click the TV on, do we? But culture has changed. And as we talked about a little bit on Sunday morning, one of the things I love about the book of Ecclesiastes is it speaks the language of this culture. It asks the questions people are asking today. Now the entire Bible is relevant, and we have seen this again and again, we've talked about how Scripture is as relevant now as the moment it was God-breathed. And it impacts every culture of every age, of every generation, all across time. But here we are opening Ecclesiastes, and I am absolutely struck by the fact that this is the language of the secular humanist. At least that's the mask, remember, that the preacher puts on. He puts on the mask of secular humanism to begin asking the questions and thinking through like a humanist would think, all the while knowing where he's going. And I am convinced of this because every now and then it pops out. Well, we're going to take a a good look over the next several weeks at this postmodern book written 3,000 years ago. And Father, we ask your blessing in our understanding. Lord, we don't want to read anything into Scripture. That, Lord, is, is not what we're about. Father, not eisegesis, where we look in and and we kind of impose our own thoughts on your word. We want exegesis, where your word teaches us. And we invite your Holy Spirit to bring your words to life that we might understand what you intend. Not what I intend, not what any of us have. We, We pray, Father, we might set biases aside and traditions aside and past religious experience aside and just walk in relationship with you and hear the intent of your heart as you teach us. Lord, I pray for those strong believers in here, Christians who have walked with you for a long time, that this book would be a training manual in understanding the language of the non-believer. That we might be trained up by it. And as we're trained along the way, begin to develop and, and understand spiritual answers, Lord, to these naturalistic questions. And I pray, Father, if there is anyone teetering on faith that the answers that begin to emerge here would be very powerful, palatable, and would strengthen and grow faith. Perhaps, Father, where there is little or none. We ask, Father, what is impossible with us, but with you all things are possible. So, Holy Spirit, we hand this book to you now as we open and study in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Christmas movies is The Walton's Homecoming. 
I don't know if you all have seen that one. It's just every year I have to watch it. It's uh, a favorite of mine. I saw it when it was first on the air, early 70s, and remembered it from back then. It finally came out on DVD. I was so excited. Well, there's a scene in the movie. It's Christmas Eve. It's late at night. It's nearing midnight, and Grandpa Walton comes to the door, and all the families gathered around. They're waiting for, for Father Walton, Paul Walton, whatever you want to call him, waiting for him to come home. I'm not sure if he's going to make it. And Grandpa Walton's putting his muffler on and his hat and his jacket. And, and as he heads to the door, he says, Well, it'll be midnight before you know it. I'll be getting to the church now. Grandma Walton scolds him. Old man, you stay in this house. You're too old to be prancing around in the cold. And he says, Old woman, you're not the boss of me. I've got to ring in Christmas. And then Mrs. Walton, his daughter, steps in. Papa, it's awful cold outside. No one will expect you to be ringing the bell tonight. He says, the Methodists are going to be ringing in Christmas, and so will the Episcopals. Well, the Baptists are going to be ringing in Christmas right along with them. I tell you that because the book of Ecclesiastes begins with the ringing of a bell. We talked about this on Sunday. A bell. In the Hebrew, Abel, which means vanity, breath, vapor, futility. And we're going to hear this bell ring 37 times before we get to the end of this 12-chapter book. Vanity, futility, vapor, meaningless. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, Kohalath in the Hebrew, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And with a bell ringing in our ears, the preacher steps up to the podium. He takes the stage and begins to lead the assembly through a course in secular humanism. But it's a well-charted course intentionally designed to lead us to teach the congregation the futility of life lived without God. That's what the book is about. The futility of life lived without God. If you want a single sentence that describes this book, that's it. He puts on, as we talked about, the mask of the humanist groping for meaning in a world without God. But all the while, I am absolutely convinced he is intentional in what he's doing. He's not groping blindly, but he puts on that persona of one groping blindly because he wants to show, to to prove, to reveal that life without God is a bell, futile, meaningless. All the while, he's leading us back to God. And we will end there, kind of apex there, you know, climax there, at the end of chapter 12, literally the very end of the book, he comes finally around to it and draws our attention back to the Lord who alone removes the vanity. And, and fills us with meaning and purpose. In this secular classroom, and I just want to stir you up by way of reminder from Sunday, we learn of Elohim and we learn by experience. We learn of Elohim, God at a distance. Not Yahweh, not Yeshua, not the close, intimate, personal uh, God that we know, but God at a distance, Elohim. Because from a humanistic perspective, God is distant. Talk to a secular humanist today, and, and they may not disagree completely. They might, may not say there is no God. They may not claim to be atheists, but agnostic, yes. And a God out there, mm, if there is a God or was a God, or perhaps he's busy or he's off doing something else, or perhaps there's just a vague higher power. I'll tell you, 
with apologies to Alcoholics Anonymous, the whole higher power thing just really gets my goat. It just does. How can you know? Let's just vague it up. Higher power, and that's a humanistic perspective. God is distant, and so the only name that we have for God in Ecclesiastes is Elohim. But we learn even from far away, God is Creator. God is sovereign and God is incomprehensibly wise. We looked at that on Sunday. We also talked about the fact that we learn by experience, vicariously trying on every human mask until we are left stripped and empty before God with the vesper bell of vanity peeling in the distance. Hebrews 4.13 tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Stripped of all that we have or are or achieved or thought was possible, we just stand naked before Him with the reality of our own vanity without Him. Well, that's where the preacher, Koheleth, takes us to final judgment. Some think of the book as Solomon's bitter rant. I could not disagree more. I see it, I believe it is a brilliant sermon, magnificently written, ringing in the ears and and piercing the heart. Verse 3 says, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See? See this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still? And as we saw Sunday, man, this just drips of the questions of the humanist. Kohala sets the tone of Ecclesiastes with these questions, portraying a world just spinning around endlessly, monotonously, meaninglessly. And these words are getting louder in our culture. And you can just take those few verses and just about everything he says there Well, I don't know about you, but I've heard asked. I've heard put in a question. I've heard debated as reasons for not really believing, at least in a personal God. But God responds. In fact, God responded 2,000 years ago specifically to the questions of the humanist by becoming human himself. And by putting on flesh and, and walking among us. And that life that Jesus lived, that human life, was so dramatically impactful for those 11 guys that they went on, by the power of His Spirit, to radically alter the face of the earth. One of those guys, Peter, the old fisherman, responds well to this statement that a generation goes and a generation comes. Keep your finger there and turn over to the book of Second Peter, chapter 3. We're going to look at something here right now for a moment, go back to Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to come back 
to 2 Peter 3 at the end tonight to talk about one other thing. I mention Peter partially because he so beautifully answers the humanistic question. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And Peter would say, really? This unschooled, untrained fisherman who had been with Jesus says the following, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. A generation comes, a generation goes, everything remains the same. And these are the words of the mocker, the humanist who would deny that anything is going to change, anything is going to happen. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter is saying that things do not just go on and on. For anyone to say the world has gone on and on since the beginning means that they have missed the flood. They deny the flood. This worldwide catastrophic flood that even humanistic science said something like that had to happen. Some massive worldwide event like that. Because of the the sediment levels and the things that we see in the earth and geology digs up, archaeology finding things. It's the only thing that explains so much. And Peter says, hey, if if you think that life just goes on and God never steps in, well, let me give you point number one. The flood. Talk about a massive worldwide intervention. And the flood is proof positive that the earth will not remain forever, that God will ultimately judge. He did then. He will again. Not with water the second time. But verse 8 going on, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Why does Peter say that? A lot has been made out of this verse to change seasons and times, or to try and put a different inflection on things. Listen to the context. Peter's talking about the flood, and then he makes this statement, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Why would he say it? Well, very simply, the flood happened in the tenth generation from Adam, a thousand years after creation, which to the Lord was like a day. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Very simply, that was when the flood took place. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Read Genesis 5, ten generations, Noah comes along, tenth generation from Adam, and the flood. So a thousand years... And Peter continued saying, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He waited a thousand years the first time. By my estimation, and some would disagree, he's waited five thousand years for the second time. But it's coming. Judgment will come. The point that Peter makes is absolutely clear to the secular humanist. He says the earth does not remain, will not remain forever. The sun will not always rise. The wind will not forever swirl on its courses. The waters will not always run to the sea. They will turn blood red and they will run dry before it's all said and done. 
So we can't just sit around assuming it's just going to be the same tomorrow as it was today as it was yesterday. And Christians understand this. We get into the mindset, perhaps not intentionally, of thinking tomorrow's just another day. And then it gets bias, and it becomes yesterday, and opportunities are lost. Opportunities are lost to speak with the lost. We do not know the day or the hour. Jesus was so clear about that. We have got to be intentional in our walk, intentional in our relationships, intentionally talking about Jesus. I know it's hard. I know at times it will cause consternation in friendships. It will cause frustration in family relationships. But man, if you knew, if you knew for a fact, tomorrow morning at 7.32 Jesus was coming, what would you do with the rest of tonight? Would anybody go to bed? And I'll tell you what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't throw a fellowship party here in the barn. I'd say, see you all in heaven, and I'd be out there trying to find anyone I could to say he's coming tomorrow, and I know, and here's how I know. Join us. And that's the kind of urgency and mentality we've got to have. Judgment will come. So back to Ecclesiastes. Is Koheleth wrong in his assessment? Is he wrong in saying generation comes and generation goes, verse 4, but the earth remains forever? No, he's not wrong. He's wearing the mask. And that alone explains so much of confusion in the book of Ecclesiastes. These statements are not always statements of fact, of spiritual or biblical truth. They're statements made from the perspective of the secular humanist. And Koheleth is wearing that mask, the preacher, playing a role, expressing a worldview that does not work. Cynical comments, contradictions between certain statements in this book and the larger library of Scripture need to be seen in that vein, with that understanding. If he says something and you go, well, that doesn't fit in Scripture, well, of course not, because he's not speaking spiritually, he's speaking naturally. He's speaking with the mind of natural man rather than the mind of the Spirit. Why? So that we will understand that the mind of the natural man will not get us where we need to go. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And I told you, under the sun, it's big with Koheleth. And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of knowledge and of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize this also is striving after wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Is that true? It is without God. Increasing knowledge results in increasing pain when God is not part of the picture. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. Unless God is the substance of that wisdom, knowledge, unless He's the one bringing it. Now, I want to pause for a moment here, and I went back over this. I know we covered chapter 1 pretty extensively on Sunday, but I want to go back over this, this idea of the preacher. Cheryl even asked me today, we were, we were talking about it, she was like, why, do, why don't they just say Koheleth? Is that his name? Or, or the, why do they translate it preacher? And, and that's because the Hebrew word literally means preacher. And remember, there's no capitals 
in the Hebrew language, so we're not sure, um, you know, was it supposed to be a name? Was it a description? Was it a self-designation? And I would lean toward the second two, a description and a self-designation. Again, a persona that Solomon took on in the writing of this book. Talked a little bit about why. Let me talk a, a bit more. Some think as many as nine people contributed to the book of Ecclesiastes because the cross currents here are, are so numerous. But the more we study it, the more we read it, the more we recognize, no, this is one guy who's just coming at every possible angle. He's trying everything he can to get to the truth, and without God, it's not working. But some have said that. That's been mostly uh, dismissed. But others believe Kohalath was a man who wrote as Solomon, writing as a humanist. And Rachel smiles and laughs over there. It's amazing what commentators will do. To try and figure things out, instead of just taking things as Scripture explains things, and it becomes pretty obvious, this is not a man in the first person acting like Solomon, wearing the mask of Solomon, wearing the mask of the humanist, because the writer closes this. They say, he closes the book in the third person. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher also sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. And they say, well, now he's speaking in the third person, so clearly this is now someone else writing about him. No, he very easily is writing about himself. But we talked about why on Sunday Solomon is the guy. A little bit more on this. Solomon is the only one who fits, in my humble opinion. (laughs) And it's the right one. Um, Because (laughs) taking the simple approach, we find the writer taking great pains to specify his identity. He's very clear in what he says. Here are the primary clues. He, He calls himself, number one, he calls himself son of David. So he limits himself right there to one of the sons of David. He ties himself to that family line, the Davidic line of of Judah's kings. So he's one of these guys, son of David. Secondly, he calls himself king. So he's a son of David, and he's a king. But he's even more specific. King over Israel. Even more specific, king over Israel in Jerusalem, which limits us even more. In fact, it limits us to only one of two possibilities. There were only two kings of Israel, or kings over Israel, in Jerusalem. Only two, David and Solomon. What about Saul? He was king over Israel in Gibeon. Jerusalem was not conquered. David conquered Jerusalem. What about after Solomon? Rehoboam was king over Judah. In Jerusalem, because the kingdom split and divided. So we come down to just two guys, David or Solomon, and it's the son of David. Well, (laughs) what does that leave us? Again, the obviousness of Scripture and, and the way sometimes scholars will leapfrog over simple truth, looking for some deep, vast meaning, when it's just, it is what it is. Sorry, could you spell Koala, please? Kohalath. Could you spell it? Yes. Q O H E L E 
T-H, if we were writing it in English. Now, in Hebrews, that would be, I don't know. In yeah, so transliterate it. Koheleth. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Verse 16, a little more about him. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Now, before we jump to the obvious conclusion that it is Solomon saying this, he calls himself wiser than all who were over Jerusalem before him. So some scholars say, Well, the only person over Jerusalem before him would be David. Why would he say all? Why not just say, I was wiser than my dad? <laughs> you know? The reality is, gang, he was wiser. We're not limited only to kings here. Wise men, advisors, counselors, all those who are part of the ruling cabinet of King David, all those who ruled with David or alongside David or in the wisdom of David's, you know, his entire kingdom during all of his reign. Solomon is saying, I was given a wisdom greater than all of them. And again, it's a simple answer. But remember when the Lord met Solomon at Gibeon? Solomon goes to Gibeon and the Lord said, Ask what you desire of me. And I'll give it to you. And Solomon thinks for a moment. And 1 Kings 3, verse 11. Verse 10, Solomon asked for wisdom. Verse 11, God responds, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches for yourself. You have not asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. I love that. God often answers our prayers before we're even done praying them. I've already done it. You got it. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that, God speaking, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. So Solomon must be, is clearly, the man being talked about in verse 16, the man whose mind observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge over all those who were in Jerusalem before him. But this does beg a question. If after reading through Ecclesiastes and seeing what Solomon did with this wisdom, you might say, well, Lord, if you knew that Solomon was going to take all the wisdom you gave him and just squander it like this, why did you give it to him in the first place? Did God know that Solomon was going to take this divine gift to test foolish human experiences, even sinful things? Did God know? And if so, why did he give it? And I would extend that question to say, why does God give any man talents or gifts that are abused? Ephesians 4.8 tells us He gave gifts to men. 1 Corinthians 12.7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, talking about believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.11, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. And that's in the book of 1 Corinthians. And you know if you've studied that book, the church at Corinth was wildly out of control, completely abusing the gifts that had been given to them. God gifts man with gifts. And God gifts man with the freedom to use or abuse those gifts. We can abuse the gifts of God. Why would God give these to Solomon? Doesn't he know that Solomon's going to abuse the gifts? Of course he does. But remarkably, God also has a greater purpose that is never thwarted even by the foolish choices of man. 
And Solomon, in so choosing to go down this very humanistic, very secular path to test out all of these different aspects of human life, by choosing to do that, we are blessed with the result in Ecclesiastes. We are blessed with the end result. We now have a man in history, wisest man who ever lived until Jesus came along. We have a man in history, a man like you and me, given great wisdom who tried it all. And now experientially he can say, it doesn't work. It is abject failure. He knew Solomon was going to do this. He knew Solomon was going to take the natural path with the divine gift, but the result is a great book for all mankind, written from the humanistic perspective, and and it begs the one answer that man most desires, God. And that's it. And God is the answer. When any human being messes up the gifting of God, we're reminded of this again and again and again. God is the answer. When a pastor, gifted in certain areas, stumbles and falls to some horrible sin, we're reminded once again, it wasn't the pastor, it was Jesus. He's the one we were following in the first place. When a brother or sister in Christ, gifted in many areas, foolishly hurts another brother or sister, we're reminded again, (laughs) it's not them. It's Jesus we follow. It is never a man. It is never a woman. And so there is a beauty in God even giving us the freedom to abuse the gifts that He's given. Knowing we're going to stumble, knowing we're going to fall, once again we come back to that same place. God alone is perfect. God alone is the answer. God alone satisfies. Well, I'm 99.9% sure Kohalath is Solomon. But, that being said, remember from Sunday, he wants you to forget that it's Solomon. In fact, the first two chapters he will refer to as royalty. After that, you will never hear it again. He never calls himself king again. Like a player on the stage, he puts on this secular mask and begins to walk with it. And he would, that you and I, would forget that this is Solomon the king. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So you so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too is futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored my mind, with my mind, how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He, he opens up here the experience, what we could call the paradox of pleasure. I tried out pleasure. Try out laughter. You know, those who would say, all you need to do is just, you need laughter. Well, how'd that work out for John Belushi? You know, or further back, some of you remember Lenny Bruce. How did this work out for some of these great comedians? Chris Farley. People who, boy, if anyone could make you laugh, they could. And yet in all cases, tragic death. The paradox of pleasure is this. The more pleasure you pursue, the less pleasure you get. The harder you go after pleasure, the less you're going to find. And it leaves you with one of two possible conclusions. Chasing down pleasure, the paradox is that you either have consternation or contentment. Those are the two options there. When you get to the end and find out pleasure's not working, you either get frustrated by it, and so you seek more pleasure, you go after more, or you end up content. And Peter, again, talking in 1 Peter chapter 4, says, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. 
Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to the so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter says, you've tried it. Kohala says, I tried it. It got me nowhere. And Peter says, in all this, they are surprised, that is, the people you used to run with, they are surprised you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. And that's consternation. Those who would seek pleasure for pleasure's sake and find that it's not working, when you break off from them and begin to find your contentment, your peace in Jesus, it's frustrating. They don't get it. Why aren't you partying with us? Why aren't you drinking with us the way you used to drink with us? Why are you laughing with the same jokes you used to laugh with? Why this this change? And And it's frustrating because the world cannot understand why anyone would walk away from the pleasures of the world. Because that's all they've got. In fact, they're going to assume that your religion has to be getting you something. You've got to get something for it. In fact, Paul refers to this. 1 Timothy 6.5 Men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Oh, okay, there's something else here. There's something going on. You're getting something out of being involved in that church. You're dipping into the, you know, when the basket comes around. You, <laughs> is that what's going on? You do the count, right? So you have a little extra for Saturday nights. What is it? What are you getting? They think that godliness is a means of gain. That's the pleasure-centered world. It has to be a main, means of gain. Otherwise, why would you do it? There are people tonight who, who don't understand why you're sitting in a barn listening to Bible teaching. Really? I mean, the Republican debates on. You could have been listening to that, at least. See who these guys are? I mean, really? That's your choice? Well, you know Paul says it is a means of great gain, but not like the humanist thinks. 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And so here's the paradox of pleasure as one walks with the Lord, is that you, you've tried pleasure, you get to the end of it, and rather than consternation, you realize the true path with Jesus is just contentment. Just being content with what you've got. Because you're never going to be content chasing down things you don't have. So just be thankful for where you are, what you have, what the Lord has provided for you. How do we develop that? How do we get to the place where we are truly just content with where the Lord has us? Two words for you. Mark time. Mark time. Count your days. Number your days. Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Mark time. I was in marching band in high school and then again in college. And marking time, if you've ever been in marching band, you know the whole band begins to march in place, marking time. As it's counted out, the drummers are playing and everybody is lockstepping together you know, in that position. They're not going anywhere, marking time until it's time to go. And that's where we're at in this world. We number our days. We mark time. We know that where we are is not where we're going. It's just where we are. And so we mark time preparing to go where He wants us to go. It's a state of readiness. 
And it's wisdom to recognize our days are short. This life is a drop in the bucket. We're only the start of that day when the saints go marching in. Okay? But if we don't learn this, if we don't find this place of contentment, well, another paradox is going to quickly follow. And this is interesting because chapter 2, I find that it follows a pattern of life. Often in our younger years, we pursue pleasure. Pleasure matters the most. Having fun, you know, things that taste good, things that feel good, things that are enjoyable. That's, you know, we want to do the, the pleasurable, the fun stuff. But pleasure begins to lose its luster, even in the humanistic world. And so people say, all right, enough about pleasure. Let's get to work. And so we get to the languishing of labor. The languishing of labor. Verse 4. I enlarged my works. I build houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Solomon in all of his wealth had no limitations. This is why it's perfect that it was Solomon. Richest man in the world could do anything he wanted. Nothing to stop him. So he started to roll up his sleeves and to create and develop kind of this fantasy land for himself. In fact, that's what he does. He builds Disneyland. <laughs> Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, ponds. You know, he's, he's, he's working on... You know that Disneyland was Walt Disney's favorite place to be? Now, if you were to go visit Disneyland and drive around it, we lived there for five years of our life in Anaheim, California. I mean, it's just concrete and smog and hot. and It's just not it, you know. Anyone from Anaheim here? Live there? Close to there? I mean, no, one, no one's proud of it. That's just kind of the way it is. But Walt Disney, he had an apartment there on Main Street in Disneyland. And he would just go be in the park. You know, this, it's this little fantasy that was not real life. That's exactly what Solomon's doing. Verse 7, he goes further. You know, if Disneyland wasn't enough, he decides to build Pleasure Island. I bought male and female slaves. And I had home-born slaves. And I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. And then I became great, he said, and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom stood by me. Whatever King Solomon wanted, King Solomon got. Now we're still not out of chapter 2. So we haven't quite gotten to the point where we completely forget that this is King Solomon. And that's, again, purposeful. He uses his position to legitimize his preaching. So we start off, and he wants to let you know, he gives enough information so you know it's Solomon, so that as you read, you know, okay, yeah, this guy really did have the resources to do exactly what he's talking about. He's not just talking about something he's heard, he really has experienced it all. So with that behind him, he continues on. Verse 9 again says, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. I think about Bill Cosby talking about people at the end of the week on Friday night saying, I've worked hard all week, therefore I'm going to go out and get drunk because I deserve to get drunk. (laughs) Just stupid, you know. 
And this is what he's saying. I worked hard, therefore I deserve some pleasure. So pleasure at this stage in life moves, moves from that place of a personal right that a lot of times kids think they have to a personal reward. I've earned it now. I've worked hard. So I should get my vacation. I should get my time. I should get the bonuses. I should get the cars. I should get the yachts and the houses and all the, you know, the fruits of my labor. Tomorrow night, President Obama is slated to give his job speech. His plan to get Americans back to work. And boy, that is, isn't that the buzz right now on the news today? Get America back to work. Get America back to work. And I understand what, what all that's about. But you know what? Even if he were to succeed, the sum total of all of our work will have this result. Gong. A bell. Vanity. It's vanity. You will never produce enough to be satisfied with it. You will never accomplish enough in and of yourself, in your life, to finally sit back and go, yeah, I've I've arrived. There will always be more that could have been done. Labor does not satisfy. In fact, he says in verse 11, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Down in verse 17, listen to this. So I hated life. <laughs> For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. George Bernard Shaw said, youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> because by the time we've done enough to uh, labor, to enjoy our labor, we're too tired to enjoy it. You know? Want to go out and do something fun tonight? No, I just want to lie here and, you know, (laughs) veg. (laughs) I just don't have the strength anymore. And the futility of life sinks in. And tragically, many people end up in verse 17, I hate life. I hate my life. I've heard people say that. I hate it. Do you see the stunning contrast? Even here, Christians, I mean... One thing is, when it gets darker, the light is that much brighter. And Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. To get you to hate life, basically. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But rather than recognizing this, nose to the grindstone, Kohaleth works even harder. Look in verse 18. Go on. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He's looking at his sons now. They didn't work for this. They didn't achieve what I'm... Why am I getting... And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, verse 20, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. All the parks and ponds and trees and herds and concubines, all of it. He's looking around saying, it's not going to do me any good. Verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. (laughs) This too is vanity and a great evil. 
For what does a man get in all his labor and in all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. This is also the workaholic. This is the person who got up on that treadmill thinking at some point they'd get off and enjoy the fruit of their labor, but they're on the treadmill now. I can't stop now. I can't even stop thinking now. When I lie in bed at night, Kohala says, my mind is spinning with all the work i got to do tomorrow. And we're hitting midlife here, aren't we? And midlife crisis is about to come crashing in. The workaholic, the person for whom work itself becomes the end. Not the means, but the end. And you know, one of the greater tragedies as I watch this happen, it spills over into religious life. Where the workaholic then comes into the church and wants to work the works. And they said to him in John 6.28, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And, (laughs) I mean, can you just see the crowd leaning forward waiting for the rest of it? And Jesus just smiles. That's it. This is the work. Believe in me. Because labor for the sake of labor will only result in languishing of spirit. So pleasure is paradoxical and labor is languishing or laborious. And we hit the midlife crisis. All the satisfaction we thought we'd have by the time we hit about the middle of our life is not there. A lot of you guys you understand exactly what I'm saying. Where we start to ask the question, and ladies, this is what I have for all my work. This is where I this is it. This is where I am. And so Solomon turned to the mania of meaning. And a lot of people do this exact thing. The secular humanist now says it's not pleasure, it's not labor, it's discovering my purpose. My meaning. Rick Warren's purpose-driven life has just taken the world by storm over the last several years. People just clamoring to get that book because that's going to give me the purpose I've been longing for. And if I do the 40 days of purpose, I'll find my purpose. You know, and, and you know, no, no dispersion on, on Rick Warren because he points in the right directions. Jesus. But this whole idea, suddenly people are just hungering for purpose. Verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? I want to have an impact after my life. That will give me a sense of meaning. I'm going to do something now that makes the world a better place for someone else then. At first it works. At first there's some degree of satisfaction. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom excels folly. As light excels darkness. This is a good thing. Solomon is chasing after wisdom and he's pouring over it and he's writing it and he's collecting it. And I think at this point in his life was when he put together the book of Proverbs. Calling wisdom from all manner of sources, putting down his own in writing and reading it and thinking through it. And boy, this is good. Oh, yeah. Wisdom. Wisdom's good stuff. Verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head. In other words, he's thinking. He's seeing clearly. The fool walks in darkness. (laughs) And then this thought hits. And yet, I know that one fate befalls them both. 
Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? Verse 15. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Wow. So even the search for meaning and purpose, even trying to leave a lasting legacy of wisdom behind, he says, even that is abject futility. Gong. It's a vapor. It will not last. It is a waste of my time. And suddenly, after crossing that line of midlife crisis, the secularist search for meaning comes to an abrupt halt in the face of the great despair, death. You can't get around it. It's coming. It's out there. John Donne in Meditation 17 wrote, Any man's death diminishes me. Because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Do you hear it? Tolling, pealing, chiming. It is the one absolute the most relativistic person cannot deny. There are no absolutes. You're going to die? Well, yeah, there's one. And you can't get around it. Secular humanists themselves recognize this all-horrifying truth. The planet, they say, is dying, and it is. So what do they do? we got to do something. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, you know, great. I'll try not to litter. You know, I'll use the light bulbs that are swirly, I guess, if I have to do that. we got to save the planet. We can't. We can't stop it. The planet is dying, and we can't stop it. We cannot stop the demise. Our existence, our world's existence, is limited, and science has proven this over and over. We are spinning out. Really not trying to depress you tonight, but these are some realities. (laughs) The Koheleth is laying out before us, and no wonder Al Gore speaks with such despairing passion. Seriously, if you're looking at a world, and this is it... This is all we've got. Boy, we're in trouble because this world is fast dying off. Second law of thermodynamics dispels global warming because it teaches and we know that whenever energy is given out, it is lost from the source. And we know that the sun is losing energy. It is burning out. By the way, this last week, they've shown there's been an incredible surge massive uh, solar storms all over the sun. I don't know if you caught that in the news. I find that fascinating. Anything in the sun, moon, and stars that's going on that's different or unique, having impact on planet Earth. And so there are tremendous solar flares. We we get one big enough, we could lose all our cell phones, and I'd be okay with that. (laughs) The sun is burning out. All the evidence that proponents of climate change are pointing to is true. Gang, the world is changing. The world is dying. And not because human beings are using up the vast resources. It's dying because it was never meant to last forever. God did not create this world to be eternal. He created man to be eternal. Created woman to be eternal. But not this world. It's coming undone around us. Don't we see it happening? 
I can say that with a smile. I'm really not worried about it. But this world is coming apart around us. More and more in these so-called natural disasters that are happening, we're watching a world that is just shaking and groaning and aching in its futility. Oh, Paul talks about that, doesn't he? Romans 8.20 Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom, freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's talking about the millennial kingdom where this world will finally experience a thousand years of bliss under the rule of Jesus. And the natural world will be more wonderful than it has ever been under the righteous rule of Jesus. Well, Paul goes on, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. We were comparing backaches at staff meeting today. <laughs> yeah, I got this thing, I got this electric thing that shoots down this way and across that way. Well, I can hardly, you know, sit down. I mean, it was really funny. I'm watching everybody, even Jake. <laughs> Like, dude, you're 26. You are in trouble. (laughs) We are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, Paul says, the redemption of our body. Hallelujah. But gang, listen, even if we could completely green mankind to the satisfaction of the environmentalists, this planet will still not survive a universe slated for devastating end. Keep your finger here and go back over to 2 Peter. This is a bonus teaching. I just I love reading this section of Peter's letter because he writes with a scientific brilliance that no common fisherman could possibly ever have. And he's right on so many things that science itself didn't figure out until, oh, the last century. And Peter says in verse 10, picking up right there, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Wait, 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 wait a minute. How does that jive with the coming kingdom? How does that fit? Um, I thought, Rick, if, if I follow just the literal revelation outline that the church is raptured, right? And then tribulation, seven years. And then Jesus comes back and we come with Him in a thousand years of, of the kingdom. But, but Peter here is saying that everything's going to be destroyed. When is that? I'll tell you just a minute. Verse 11. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now listen, stay in Peter for just a second. This word elements in verses 10 and verse 12, the word in the Greek is stoikia. And it's the word, it means elements. It also means alphabet or building blocks. Because the elements are just like alphabetical letters in the alphabet, the building blocks of language, the elements are the building blocks of the natural world. So it's a good choice of a word here. But Peter says, in the day of God, and by the way, there are two days he mentions here, the day of the Lord and the day of God. Those are two different days. The day of the Lord in Scripture always refers to the seven-year tribulation. The day of God is much later. 
And in the day of God, he's talking about this, this incredible explosion that the heat will be so intense, literally, Peter says, it will melt the elements. Okay? It will melt the elements. Look back in verse 7. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter was way before his time in saying what he was saying. And you might ask the question, where's this heat being kept? If there's this incredible intense heat being kept for judgment, where's it being kept? Well, he's just talking spiritually, Rick, I'm sure. No, I think it's literal. Absolutely. And I would suggest to you that the power, that heat, that force of fire is being kept inside the elements. In fact, we know it's there. Last century, a group of great scientific minds discovered something amazing that brought us into the atomic age. Men like Einstein, uh, Fermi, Oppenheimer, all three Jews, came up with, discovered, opened up a world of the atomic and subatomic levels. And three quick things that they realized. We learned the material world is made up of atoms. You know that. That even this stand is made up of atoms. Moving at incredibly fast speeds. This, this stool here is not solid. Now, we perceive it as solid only because the atoms that make up the stool, and this is freaky stuff, the atoms that make up this stool are moving so fast that they feel solid. When I lean against it, I'm leaning on atoms moving at an incredible rate and holding together the material that makes this up. And at the chairs that you're sitting in. If the atoms were to slow down, it would be really funny in here all of a sudden. <laughs> you know. So we know that about the atoms. And we know that atoms themselves are made up of three types of particles. Positively charged and negatively charged. Electrons, neutrons, and protons. Okay? So these particles charged in different ways all make up this atom. But the nucleus, and here's where it gets really interesting. The nucleus of an atom contains the greatest amount of that individual atom's energy. That's where the power source really is, right there in the nucleus, because it's packed tight with protons. It's like a little proton ball right inside the middle of the atom. Protons, all packed together tightly, all positively charged. And it is naturally impossible. And yet it is. It is. That's the way an atom is. Positive protons. Did you ever play with um, magnets when you were a kid? You know, like black and white Scotty dogs. Did you ever have those? It's a little black and a little white Scotty dog. And if you put them together, their noses would they go and they'd stick. If you turn them around backwards, if you tried to put the nose of one dog toward the tail of another one, the other one would run away. You know, it's positively negatively charged. The nose of the one and the nose of the other, it's positive to negative. But when you go positive to positive, it pushes away. Positively charged protons in the atom should explode. They don't. And scientists have come up with this brilliant title for it. Strong nuclear force. (laughs) Or if you don't like that one, this one's even better. Atomic glue. But what is it? We don't know. Just holds together. There in the atom. Amazing. And Peter says the fire is being kept that is going to cause the very elements themselves to burn up. And I suggest to you, we know exactly 
what atomic glue is, what this strong nuclear force is, or better, who it is. It's Jesus. Why would you say that? Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Even the atom, even the atom. He is the strong nuclear force. So next time you're talking with a nuclear physicist, just tell them, hey, by the way, I know what keeps the atom together. It's Jesus, and just walk off. (laughs) He is the atomic glue. Peter gives us this amazingly accurate description. A day is coming when this energy, this fire, pent up, packed in, kept in reserve, is going to be let loose. And it will all blow sky high. And this world, the heavens and the earth, and all the created things will be destroyed. When? When does this happen? My opinion is at the throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. At the end of Jesus' kingdom, the end of that thousand years, there's that overthrow, not overthrow, but there's that attempted overthrow, that usurpation of Satan and and a mass of humanity trying to come up against the Lord and He's going to put them down and that will be it. And Jesus is going to clean up. He's going to clean up earth. He's going to clean up heaven. And Revelation 20, verse 11, tells us this. At the great white throne judgment, listen to the language. I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And there was no place found for them. The Greek word fuego, fuego, fled away, means to disappear quickly and be forgotten. And Isaiah says, in Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So I think that's when it's going to happen. But until then, back to Ecclesiastes, the world is dying, and it is on a course, even after the Millennial Kingdom, for utter destruction. And we can't get around it. All that causes a deep despair for the humanist. But for the saint... It brings about a sweet delight. Kind of a secret delight. You know what's coming. You know? First time I taught through the book of Revelation, what a thrill. Getting to chapter 19 and the second coming of Jesus there was just a thrill, you know? I just loved it. Wow! And then chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of Jesus. Wow! It just got better. And then chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, and chapter 22, new Jerusalem, the whole thing. It just it was like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> And I love how the book ends because it's how our story ends. Verse 24, let's finish up. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? I like that. This is not a negative thing. The eating and drinking and enjoying the simple pleasures is not a bad thing. We are meant by God to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. We should. In fact, we more than all people should. A satisfying meal. There's nothing wrong with sitting back after a good meal and just going, yeah, that was was good. Or a touching song that, that moves you emotionally. Or a warm embrace. Simple things. A good book. We're meant to enjoy these things. A crackling fire on a fall evening. Yeah. 
Bust a gut laughter at a funny joke. We should enjoy these things. Scorecards for the pastor on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Which, by the way, I thought was really funny. I did. Uh, you know, we, we take ourselves too seriously, I think. And God gives us the simple joy of being together and, and the simple laughter and, and all these things. I mean, simple pleasures. The problem is... You take God out of the picture, and for the humanist, even the simple pleasures end up disappointing. They really do. All these good things. What spoils them is our hunger to get more out of them than they can give. After a while, it just gets old. And that leads to disappointment. And disappointment comes as a result of barring God the Creator from the simple pleasures of His creation. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.6, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And I think that that is both a, a no disappointment on the grand spiritual plane, but I think it's also on the very simple day-to-day plane. If you believe in him, if you're walking with Jesus, disappointment is not for you. Well, we shouldn't be a people disappointed. Because even in the most simple of things, we find the joy of the Lord. Do you think about God in the simple pleasures? Do you ever think about God in the middle of a good meal? Or while you're reading a good book and you're just so into it you can't put it down? Do you ever just for a second go, Lord, thank you. This is, thank you for giving me what the book and the reading of this. Thank you. You know, you ever sitting there laughing hysterically until you can hardly breathe and when you're done just go (laughs) praise the Lord that felt great the simple pleasures James says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow from pleasure to labor to meaning in life gang it is not the created things that bring the meaning it's the creator of the things And the more we remember that and recognize that, the more we will even enjoy the simple, created things. Paul says, Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Verse 26, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner... He has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. (laughs) Really? Hey, remember, mask of the humanist. And this is what oftentimes non-Christian people think. Oh, okay, so you good people, you get all God's blessings and and we have to suffer through life. That's that's what you're saying. And people, some people won't come to Jesus or put off coming to Jesus because they think it's so unfair. You know? Those of you who go to Jesus get good stuff and we don't. Yeah? So come to Jesus and get good stuff. Join us in this. The saint gets the good life and the sinner just gathers for the saint. That, that's what you're saying? Well, listen, what Koheleth is saying here is there is a clear distinction between sinner and saint. Clear distinction. Should we do that? Should we make a distinction? 
Is that right to show that kind of partiality? I, I thought all people were the same in God's sight, right? To a degree, yes. You know that in this life, saints and sinners are both blessed. And both face hardships and challenges. I mean, Christians, you know that probably better than non-Christians do, that just being a Christian doesn't make, make life a cakewalk. We have struggles too. Both saints and sinners receive of the provision of God in this world. Matthew 5.45, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody gets the same thing. But here's the distinction. The saint knows the intimacy of God while the sinner only knows God at a distance. And it's not that we want it to be that way, it's just that it is that way. The saint knows God intimately, even calls Him by name. The best the sinner can do is call Him Elohim. God out there. The saint has a perspective, my friends, that the sinner does not understand. So though life might be hard for the saint, he still knows fulfillment. And even though life might be really good for the sinner... He still knows futility, even in the good times, because the perspective is not there. But here's what really distinguishes the saint from the sinner in the world now. In verse 26 again, he says, For to a person who is good in his sight, the saint, good not because of what we do, but because of his grace, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What is the distinction between saint and sinner in this life? And it's simply spiritual pleasures. There are spiritual pleasures you cannot know unless you are a saint. Unless you're one of the children of God. And when you begin to walk in relationship with Jesus, there are spiritual pleasures untold. Spiritual blessings that unless you know Jesus by name, you're never going to understand. For the kingdom of God, Paul says, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now with the exception of joy, righteousness, and well maybe peace is cool, but righteousness, before I really understood the Lord, before I got into a relationship with Jesus, righteousness, okay, I don't need that. Peace and joy sound cool, but righteousness, whatever. Until you start to walk with Jesus. And then righteousness, righteousness, is a spiritual pleasure that you cannot understand unless it's been given to you. Spiritual injects even the physical with so much more of a sense of fulfillment by means of that righteousness and peace and joy. Let me explain what I mean. We share a meal of communion and utter satisfaction. We share songs, simple pleasures of songs, but... In Christ, we share them in worship and we are touched by a love eternal. We share a warm embrace, but of a brother or sister who we know we're going to walk with in eternity. We read the good book and gain lasting knowledge and wisdom. We feel the warmth of the fire of the Holy Spirit on a fall evening. We laugh with the substance of the joy of the Lord. And unless you walk with Jesus, you don't get it. For everything under the sun, the bell continues to toll. Sometimes softly in the back of the mind, but it's there. Sometimes loudly, noisily, like a gong. Vanity! But for everyone under the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, 
There is meaning and satisfaction and pleasure untold. Father, as we continue through this, I pray, Lord, may we not get stuck in this study in any of the places of negativity or depression or despair. May we continually be reminded like that secret delight that we know Jesus and that even the most simple aspects of our lives are full of meaning when shared with You, Lord. May we do so even tonight. May we just share with You. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you in your name we pray. Amen.